0: Welcome to The Legendarium Podcast. This is episode something or other. I don't even know what episode this is going to be because this is going to come out in a few weeks. But today, we are going back to the author's shelf to talk about The Black Count. This is a biography that was chosen for us by our special guest today. We'll get there in just a second. I am Craig, your host. Uh, And I just want to remind you, obviously, to go to thelegendarium.com and uh, check out our wares there. Go to Patreon. Go to Discord, join in the conversation there on Discord. We all have a lot of fun. Uh, but now let's let's get to it. Let's get to our our guests. Well, Ryan isn't much of a guest. Uh, in fact, I should mention, you shouldn't forget to donate to Patreon because we do need now in the studio after this book an official legendarium guillotine just to keep him in line. It's Ryan Bruckman. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, I have nothing to go with on a guillotine. I usually stay away from those. So. <laughs> yeah.
0: And joining us today, we you know, we were going to get a statue of him commemorating him here in Utah, but there's a bureaucratic mess <laughs> that I started just to keep that from happening. It's Brian McClellan. Hey. Hi, Brian. How are you doing? I'm
2: doing great. Thanks.
0: So Brian is, uh, for anybody who's not familiar, and I'm sure most of our audience is already, uh, but he's the author of the Powder Mage Trilogy, among other things, uh, but he has a new book that is When this is released, I think it'll be just about to release like tomorrow or something. Uh, It's called In the Shadow of Lightning, uh, a new epic fantasy. We're going to ask you more about that um, at the end of the show so people can stick around and hear more about uh, In the Shadow of Lightning. You're also the host of the Page Break podcast, which... You started, I want to say, within the last year uh, and have been thoroughly embarrassing the rest of us podcasters ever since.
2: <laughs> yeah, I so. think it was uh, maybe June of last year. So, yeah, we're closing in on a year. Yeah,
0: amazing. Yeah, it's really it's really good. In fact, we just spoke yesterday with Scott Lynch, who was a guest on your show, um, and spilled all of the secrets there that then he felt safe spilling them on our show because he's like, I got the big guy first. Yeah. So. <laughs> Anyway, yeah. So people should go check out Page Break. All right. So we're gonna get into this book, The Black Count. Um, uh, the author, forgive me, I forgot the author's name, and I don't have uh,
2: the book right. Tom Reese. Rice. Yeah,
0: that's right. Reese, Tom Reese. Yeah. Um, This is a biographical account of Alex Dumas, uh, the elder Alexandre Dumas. So we're all familiar with the. Uh, uh, the author or the, the novelist from France around uh, the turn of the 19th century, or I guess he was a little later than that. But um, it, this is about his father, who was a, a former slave uh, in the sugar colonies in the Americas. He went to France. He, you know, rose in the ranks there to become a general in the French army around uh, before and during the time of Napoleon, uh, Napoleon's rise. And so around the time of the French Revolution, fascinating time and story and character. And as I sat down to try to recap it in my uh, normal three paragraphs, I just threw up my hands in despair and said, you know what? You're going to have to go read it. It's a history. It's pretty It's pretty interesting. But Brian, let me kick the first question to you, which is the same question I ask all of our author shelf guests, which is, why did you pick this book?
2: So I picked this book because... Um, it's so stinking interesting um I mean you know because you and I when when we discussed me coming on here we talked a little bit about the idea of you know like often it's you know like uh, a novel that's you know like a fantasy novel or something that's a little more pertinent mm-hmm. to you know what I do for a living you know what the guest does for a living and um, and this one at first glance doesn't feel pertinent because it's real world, it's biographical, it's historical. Um, but like once you dig into it even a little bit, um, this kind of thing, it, it's it's almost at the root of what I do um, of, of where Powder Mage comes from because Kind of Monte Cristo is one of my favorite books. I read the, I read the, the first time I read it was one of those um, like abridged novels for kids. You know, when I was seven or eight, you know, little kid, and then I read the unabridged. I think when I was twelve, and um, and I just I lo- in the
0: original French, of
2: course. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> but I uh, I I absolutely love Alexandre Dumas. He is an amazing author. Uh, he creates such incredible stories. And uh, kind of Monte Cristo*, like I said, one of my favorite books. And so this is the true story. Of his father, um, whose life basically influenced Alexander Dumas, the, you know, the novelist's uh, whole career. When he was a very little kid when his father died, but he, uh, his earliest memories were sitting on his father's knee and hearing these stories of his father's adventures as a soldier and a man about town and all of these different little things. And uh, and so this basically, in a way, kind of formulated, you know, by kind of uh, a chain of events, uh, kind of formulated my own career, uh, because it's very, you know, my books are flintlock fantasy. They're set very influenced by kind of the Napoleonic era, by uh, everything that was going on geopolitically and um, and the big battles that happened, all this stuff, and uh, and so yeah, so that's why I chose it. It really. It just kind of, um, it kind of goes to the beginning of where I come from as an author.
0: Mm, I love it. And this is something that we talk about somewhat often on the show with with regards to world building and how authors are able to do it. And, you know, whether they succeed or fail, there's a lot that goes into whether they succeed or fail, you know, including your own perceptions but one of the things that we talk about is the the complexity that they allow their world to have or that they're capable of giving their world uh one of the things that this type of book i feel like would be really valuable to any aspiring writer especially somebody who's going to be world building doing this like secondary fantasy is you get this this is not a very long book right this is uh it's a it, for fantasy readers it's quite a short book <laughs> but uh you do get glimpses, just little glimpses into how complex uh, this society was. French society in the 17th century, the late 17th century, and how, uh, you know, like I said, he was a a former slave in the sugar plantations in the Americas, and then he showed up and it's like, hey, there's a, a society that's mostly very welcoming to somebody like you you know, on and off. And, the, you know, he had to jump certain hurdles and whatnot. And then things like really took a turn for the better uh, in some ways when this revolution happened. But then the coup happened and now we're all a bunch of racists again and you're screwed. And, and it's the kind of thing where I guess my, my point with this, this whole long comment is just the complexity that, you know, cultures, nations, people aren't static over time. Um, and there's a lot that can can influence that. anyway, so yeah, I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Ryan, did you did you finish the book? How'd it go?
1: I, yes, I did finish the book. Yes uh, <laughs> this is something the reading this is something different for me and I am glad that you chose it because I the majority in the book of my reading, like a lot of our listeners here sits in the fantasy science fiction realm. Uh, jumping into a biography, I've done it a couple times with people I really admired this is not one that was even remotely on my radar and it requires a honestly it requires a different reading uh, skill set to 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 know how to how to get the most out of it and the story is fascinating the this the i i too, count of monte cristo is my favorite of the classics uh, it i also remember checking out the great illustrated classics from my library going through that one the first time and then reading the unabridged later on so this one it excited me quite a bit uh, to, to get to know some of the original history behind it but the this uh, the author takes a lot of time especially early on in the book and as as he's growing up to give you the world in which uh you know uh alex alex, alex grew up in and the context in which which helps you understand better just how incredible what he did is um but it takes time like uh, there are a lot of times reading through it i was sitting there going i would go off and I'm like wait a minute where are we? I've, I've lost myself. <laughs> we got away from his story for a while and I'm like three paragraphs into French uh, you know, geopolitical things at the time, which it's useful information for context here. But as a reader who's, uh, who's used to that coming in a narrative form, it was a little bit different for me to deal with that.
0: I, I really like a book like this as a jumping off point you know, where he'll give you four pages on kind of naval warfare in the Mediterranean in the year, you know, 1799. And there's there's a part of you that's like, oh my gosh, you know, can we get back to Alex Dumas, please? But he does that constantly through the whole book and you can find those little tidbits. It's like a, it's like a, a historical primer, right? It, pointing you in so many possible directions of what might be interesting to you. I don't know. Uh, yeah. What do you think, Brian? Does is, is this one, does it feel like it veers off too often or does every little tidbit fascinate you?
2: So I, I don't think it does veer off too often. I, I mean, I am very fascinated by this kind of, uh, by that kind of history and having it kind of plugged in um but also you know like with count of monte cristo like that happens in the book like this was this was actually happens a lot in in that era of kind of french novel where he'd just go on a total tangent about you know something some you know like the battle of waterloo or something like that you know where you just you're suddenly um, I think Les Mis is actually like probably the worst culprit for this, where <laughs> you just like suddenly pop over for, you know, 40 pages about the French sewers, you know, crap like that. Um, but, uh, but no, I, I really quite love that, uh, especially in this sort of uh, biography because it is so con- contextualizing. It's telling us, it's giving us a framework to understand this person and how they existed and what the people around them felt about, about their, you know, rise to power and fall from, you know, grace and, and, you know, all of these little things that, you know, if you're, if it was pure narrative, pure, um, pure biography without these little tangents, I I think it would lose something.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I get that. I, I, I think I, can see where you're coming from on that. There were times though, when I was like, Alex Dumas is so fascinating. Why has it been five pages since I heard of him? Um, But you know, Hey, to each their own. And I, I don't know. I think I, I, Ryan, I may have had an easier time with some of the, uh, the tangents, so to speak, Uh, just because I was familiar. I like, I, I speak French. I live there. I know the geography of, you know, western and southern europe maybe you know i don't know maybe it was easier for me
1: but well i will also say that I, I, there are a handful of things also in a biography like in anything, that when you do audiobook style it's a little bit mm. different yeah um yeah i assume you did an audiobook on this one yeah it, like there's some nice things hearing the french pronunciations is really nice but i also had no like uh so he changes his name partway through his life to uh, kind of, I guess, stick it to his uh, his dad. He was rejecting father. his
2: father. Yeah. yeah,
0: right. Yeah.
1: So he claims his mother's name, which is where we get the Dumas from. He takes his mother's name there, and so I remember through a lot of, especially the early portions, sitting here going, "I know this is a story about Alex Alex Dumas," and I'm hearing these whole other names, and like my mind wouldn't process that this is the person I'm supposed to be listening right, to. Right. That. So that some of that's more on me than on necessarily authorship or or performance or anything like that. But you
0: know, it's funny, Ryan. We uh, just yeah, here's a tangent for you to plug our Silmarillion episodes, which by this time should be wrapped up, right? But this is something we run into in the Silmarillion where it, there are so many names, and I kept telling you and Kyle in the early going, like it's okay, just let them wash over you. Like you'll pick it up as we go. You'll you'll kind of the the important ones will float to the top as we go. Anyway it's a bit like that, I think. Um, I was having that toward the end of the book when there are so many characters around, um, you know, around Napoleon and, uh, you know, new generals, old generals uh, that had popped up throughout the book. And by the time I was at the end, I was like, oh, I can't take any more names. I can't. So I just kind of like, let it wash over me. Yeah. Um, Okay, cool. So let's see what is there so we've talked about the the book itself a little bit and obviously there's a ton more to talk about but I am curious Brian if the if the man Alex Dumas is a part of why this book is so fascinating to you if he resonated with you or if it's more you know the the concept of the book as a whole <laughs> nice one right um
2: Thanks. yeah I mean obviously like he was fascinating like there's there's so much to take out of that um and and it's 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 hard to not mention you know the the racial side of it because this was somebody whose whose father had basically just taken a slave and fathered a child had fathered several children and then ignored them for a long time and then suddenly came back and said I kind of want a son and I want to put him through French society and like literally sold Alex into slavery as a child uh, like freed him from slavery sold him back into slavery to pay for the boat ride to get back to France and then like basically he like pawned his child and then bought him back and then put him through school and and put him into high society and you gave him this really privileged life that was kind of bizarre for someone that started where he did um but yeah. then alex himself took advantage of that he was very smart he was very courageous he was a, he just he was a statuesque person he took advantage of everything that was given to him and then became a national hero essentially and you know eventually um you like like he he defeated armies he he went on like special missions himself with his soldiers um, he became uh, the equivalent of a four-star general today um before he i think it was before he he hit his 30s um he didn't live very long he i think he passed away at 43 i want to say um Something like that, yeah. but he uh like this man lived a life that was genuinely incredible by any standards. You know, this guy this guy pissed off Napoleon. You know, he both he became one of the favorites and then lost that status because he, you know, he had a very strict morality and he felt certain ways that pissed off the little general, you know. And and so you've got this crazy life of ups and downs that's just it's the kind of thing that you know, it's almost, you know, too, too amazing to be real, but that's what makes it so amazing. Right.
0: That's why, yeah, that's why I love him as a, as a protagonist in this story. I mean, it's his biography. This is a real life, but if you, if you think about it in kind of novelized terms, this is exactly who you would want to tell a story about somebody who is kind of straddling several different worlds um, and as society uh, changes its views, it, his fortunes rise and fall with that. You know, it's a very tumultuous life. So, yeah, he made, again, the equivalent of a four star general. But then after a little while, he falls out of favor it, it, like uh, blacks as military commanders fall out of favor. And so he gets busted down. Um, and now he's leading, you know, a very small contingent of, uh, I want to say, like mounted troops. Um and, and I, I might be getting some of the details wrong, but the point being he still is distinguishing himself and and creating these legends about the guy who held the bridge by himself against 30 Austrians for, you know, for three hours or whatever it was like amazing, amazing stuff.
2: Yeah. Just, a, so. a, just a real life figure that could be from a book and, and, and that's- basically gave us an entire genre, right? Because of his, because of his son and, and that's, incredible in a way you know just finding seeing the way that his influence created you know the kind of Monte cristo and the career of alexander dumas the author and and all of that kind of effect on you know like so his life gave birth to you know almost like a, our modern idea of you know kind of the adventure novel right and that's crazy yeah.
0: It's amazing uh, the only Dumas that I have read in the original French that's where I get to kind of brush off my shoulders right uh, is the three Musketeers I read the three Musketeers I did appreciate a few nods to that uh, in this book um, anyway and yeah that's he he gave some of his father's exploits to the characters in uh, the three Musketeers d'Artagnan especially uh, but that's that's a fun book to read. I can't remember, Ryan. I might have told this story on the show before, but here's a little uh, here's a little detour we're going to take to talk about the novelist Alexandre Dumas and how prolific he was. You know, we we live in the state of Utah, where you know someone casts a large looming shadow by how many books he writes every year. We won't mention him by name, but even <laughs> he's got to feel bad about how fast Alexandre Dumas wrote. So here's my fun anecdote. Uh, I was reading it, I was reading The Three Musketeers in French and it was an annotated copy. Some uh, professor there in France had done an annotated copy. And he was, he was talking about how he wrote, you know, 20,000 words a week with a quill. Um, and he, so he would write and write and write and he was having great fun with this adventure story with The Three Musketeers. D'Artagnan, in the middle of the book, D'Artagnan makes it to Paris Joins the musketeers. You know, the the king makes him a musketeer. Congratulations, you got everything your heart ever desired. Um, And Alexandre Dumas woke up the next day, according to this professor. He woke up the next day and had been writing so fast and furiously that he forgot that he had made D'Artagnan a musketeer. And so, in the official novel, I think it was serialized at the time, right? But in the official account, he wakes up the next day and has to claim his place as a musketeer again. That's that's how fast this guy wrote. His brain couldn't even keep up with its it, with itself. Uh, pretty incredible stuff. If anybody hasn't read any Alexandre Dumas books, you know, do it, please. They're amazing to this day. So, um, okay, what else do what else do we want to talk about? I've got a few things, but I want to kick it to you guys so I'm not steering the entire conversation.
1: I just have, I have a question first for both of you. Do you have a specific event or occurrence in Alex's life that stood out like that was my favorite moment, the things? Mm. Mine, I I don't know why it stuck out out of all the amazing, great things. But when he is leading uh, the, I think it was the Black Legion or uh, whatever, uh, they are they're going through this field and there's a battalion that just kind of pops out of nowhere on them. And he saves someone by shooting. He shoots the barrel of another gun. Oh, right. Remember that one? He splits the (laughs) barrel. Yeah. He pulls a Robin hood with a, you know, flintlock pistol type thing that just does (laughs) like have, if you've ever shot a black powder rifle or anything like that, the idea of actually pulling that off is just insane on its face. So, But I don't know. Uh, and it's, favorite one of those, moments. it's
0: one of those things where you kind of you kind of figure that can't be real. Like the story of him lifting a horse with his thigh. He's hanging on a tree branch like, OK, obviously apocryphal. But apparently I've
1: seen that Old Spice commercial.
0: <laughs> but apparently people kept the split rifle, right? Like that was a, a thing that got passed around. So who knows? if the story is like technically accurate, but it's a great story.
2: Well, the the yeah. horse thing was what I was actually going to bring up because I, I find it <laughs> funny, uh, even if it's not true, uh, it's an interesting bit of, you know, because like as Americans, we're raised on kind of tall tales, right? Like, you know, these mm-hmm. bigger than, you know, bigger than life sort of characters that we know that the tall tales is like 90% made up, right? Um, and so I'm I'm fascinated by this, kind of aspect of the horse story of being, you know lifted grabbing on a branch and then you know tightening his you know thighs I guess and lifting his horse right like yeah. that's obviously insane but it's such a funny little thing because it feels like a tall tale to me it feels like one of right. those little bits of you know this is how we like learn about this character from our history kind of thing, except it's French rather than American. Um, And I I very much love that uh, because it, it reflects even if not true, as we're certain um, it reflects the way that stories developed around this character and what type of things people would make up about him or, or even embellish about him. Right. And I, I, I love that.
0: I think if I had to choose a favorite moment, Ryan, it would be, um, it not not because it was rah, rah, go get him, but kind of the poignancy of it was the description of when he was released. Uh, so he was a prisoner of war for two years in Italy. Um, he got extremely sick, possibly poisoned, uh, definitely hurt more by the doctor's treatments than the disease. Um, so by the time he gets gets back to France, he had been, like Brian said, this statuesque six-foot-two, uh, you know, what would he have been? Maybe 250-pound black man, just built, you're right. Like this dude was, uh, was tough. And by the time he gets back to France, after two years in an Italian prison, he's wasted away. He's blind in one eye. He's mostly deaf. Um, you know, just things have gone really wrong. And the way that he describes how the homecoming would have gone, you know, with the wife kind of struggling to uh, hide her shock at his appearance. Um, But that, and and ultimately, you know, overcoming that and hey, it's a joyous reunion and all that. But that coupled with the letters that we get kind of peppered throughout the book. uh, And then the letters pick up with more and more frequency uh, toward the end as he's writing back to his wife during these campaigns. so the, I, I kind of, I got a sense of how much he and his wife loved each other, uh, you know, constantly, he, you know, he would refer to her as, uh, or refer to himself as your best friend, you know, always and forever. Like, I thought it was just so, so sweet. And so when they got their reunion, I, I, I felt that, I felt that a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I liked that. The other thing that I really liked, and maybe this is a, another direction we can take it, is um, how... <sighs> <laughs> how should I put it? The the man of principle. I can't remember who mentioned this, Brian, you might've said, you know, he's a man of strong principles. Um, the other moment that really stuck out to me was his, uh, he got the assignment to carry out the war in the West of France, uh, kind of around the time of the revolution um, in, uh, I, oh, I can't remember what region it was in now. I, I apologize, but it was this uh, rebellious region of France and the, the, uh, quote, unquote, the Republicans at the time, they wanted to bring them under the heel of the the new regime. And so they send him out there and he discovers all sorts of atrocities being committed by his troops. Um, and you know, other generals around him were either participating in that or kind of turning a blind eye to it. Um, and he risked a lot to bring his troops in line and to stop those atrocities um, as best he could. And it's and that's a through line through the the entire book and his career is him having actual principles in the face of a society that, that is waffling and changing constantly with the the tides of of populism, basically.
2: Well, and, and as you say, it's, it was a very dangerous time to be principled Um, during that, that revolutionary era um, during Napoleon's rise. It was sorry. Um, if you said the wrong thing, it didn't matter what kind of power you had or you thought you had, you might end up on the guillotine. Um, It was the kind of the political situation was terrifying to anyone trying to uh, put their foot down about anything um, because you never knew which way the wind would blow on that sort of thing. Um, You you might not even know who was in power back in Paris at the moment. Um, And so that kind of stuff was crazy. And, and being principled at all, uh, was very risky.
0: Yeah. Ryan, do you have any principles or do you just kind of float through life?
1: And- I, I keep them in a box over there. <laughs> yeah, I pull them out when I need them. It's just like- trying to avoid
0: that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're by my lightsabers.
1: <laughs> exactly. Those are
0: your principles, yep. right? Uh, more, yes. Speaking of digressions, Ryan, that's quite the uh, setup you've got there. Those are quite the digs. I, I hope people are watching this on YouTube, as you know, not just listening on the podcast, because Ryan's room is incredible. Wow. I,
1: I've uh, I redid my studio space to uh, bring it up to wife-approved standards. So no more stapled foam on the wall. It's all acoustic tiles and LED lights <laughs> and curtains. So. It
0: looks it looks rave ready, my friend. Yep. Uh, okay, cool. So I, I feel like I rested the conversation back. Brian, uh, any <laughs> any points any other points you want to bring up? Just favorite moments, things that you love, uh, bullet points, I guess, from from this book.
2: Something that I that really stuck with me. So I I listened to the audiobook this about 8 years ago. And it's, uh, mm-hmm. and I, I reread it once, I think about five years ago, uh, the physical ver- form. Um, and then I just, I did a little bit of kind of, you know, glancing through it in prep for this podcast. Um, but something that stuck through me all the way through was this idea that um, that he, um, that it's alluded to, I think in the um, in the prologue, um, this idea of memory, like to Alexander Dumas, <clears throat> the greatest sin a villain could commit was... Forcing our heroes to be forgotten, and uh, and he felt that that's what had happened to his father. His father had been forgotten, and uh, and that was the great sin. And um, something that I found really cool, that like genuinely gave me goosebumps, was this idea that um, that that revenge that Alexander Dumas took on behalf of his father was becoming one of the most successful authors in human history um and and cr- turning his father's story into you know what we know as as the adventure genre of of uh, the world right now and i i absolutely love that that's such a fantastic sort of um angle to the entire the the, the entire series of Kind of events that takes place from the beginning of Alex Dumas' life to his through his son's career, and you know, and also he's had several very famous uh, prodigy progeny. He's like like I think uh, his grandson ended up as a very famous playwright in France. Uh, I think his like fourth great grandson was a gold medalist in like the nineteen twenties or something like that. Like this family created amazing things. And you, uh, for somebody who lost favor during the Napoleonic era and was forgotten in a lot of ways, like that's really incredible that the, the legacy remained like that.
0: Yeah, he was, uh, he remained a larger than life figure in French culture for a while. Um, It, to the point where he did have a statue, his, there was a, a statue of him, his son, and his grandson in a square in Paris. Um, and then the Nazis tore down his statue uh, for, you know, Nazi reasons. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it, at, at the time that this book was published, so this was published in 2013, I think he did a lot of his research in 2011, 2012. Um, he, you know, he visited that square and saw that there's still, wasn't a statue. There were people who were fighting to keep that memory alive of this guy. Um, And he still didn't have a statue by the time the book was published. I looked it up. There is now a monument dedicated to Alex Dumas. It's a a very large pair of um, open or broken shackles um, in Paris, but there's still no statue of him. Uh, And I kind of feel that, that idea that the greatest sin is to forget. I mean, it's, uh it's a it's a terrible fate for somebody who did so much and who had such an, an interesting life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Ryan, are you are you uh writing my biography? Or is it, yeah, gonna, be, or is but it gonna be a good I, one? I,
1: I'm I'm not sure how people are gonna take with a coloring book biography <laughs> setup, but that's what that's what it's gonna be.
0: Uh cool. Uh great what what else do we want to spend our last few minutes on i I figure we've got about 10 15 minutes left Uh, we can talk about the book if we have other things we want to get into um do we want i just sorry go on for
1: just for a half second here we we briefly touched on at the beginning as we introduce things but uh pretty much all of us have a love and appreciation for the author alexander dumont his and his work it is very interesting to me now having read this. I, I feel like if you are a fan of of uh, that book, you should come in and read this because it changes the insight of the villain, especially the villains, but I mean, mm. yes, the Count, things like that, but especially the villains in uh, his stories, uh, they talked about uh, in the way that uh, like Richelieu is is used multiple times and things. And like to me, it was just really interesting to go through this and then think back and go, oh, wait, I, I see now why this character, uh, see why some of these villains might be this way for Alexander because he's pulling this from his father's story to a certain extent. Uh, you know, like they say, write what you know. And this is clearly something that he was, that he knew, at least from the perspective of a child, how he saw it. Like I, I think there's some wonderful insights into these classics uh, inside this book. Oh, very much so. Yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah it's uh, the kind of the way that he... The way that the villains that he has are, I mean, like, like I, I kind of I was mentioning this, but like the the way that the villains kind of they move on and they forget, you know, like in *Count of Cristo*, like they've forgotten about Edmond Dantes. They don't care. Like this was some dumb thing that happened, you know, twenty five, what was it, twenty five years ago or whatever. And um, but like, but like they're also they also have these very complex lives with different horrors or different redemptions or different like all of his characters are very uh complicated and interesting and and I I've got to imagine that the um that that comes also from his father's stories of you know like like there were there were there were racist generals that his father won over just by being awesome you know like <laughs> things like that that yeah. you know these the way that characters change and develop, and and have gr- good uh, multifaceted bases and histories, I, I absolutely love that.
0: Yeah, um, it's uh, oh no, never mind. I'll skip past that. <laughs> I will say, um, what? Uh, oh, I was going to bring up the three levels, Ryan. Uh, so for anybody unfamiliar with the three level theory that we've been talking about now for seven years on the podcast, whatever it's been. Um, this is the idea of when you're telling a story, you know, especially if you're writing fiction, but you, you could say the same about any story that this is storytelling. This biographer, uh, is telling a story of a man. Um, there's the first level, level one, that's your surface level story The you know, the actual plot as it happens. Uh, then there's level two where you might get into sociopolitical commentary, um, a lot of lo- a lot of authors love to live on level two, right? And then there's level three, and that's the kind of the personal applicability. Um, you know, what is it that I can take from this uh, to make me a better person in my relations with those immediately around me, right? Um, including myself. Anyway. Um, I was struck by, like, if Todd had been on this episode, Ryan, he'd be in tears the entire time talking about nothing but level three stuff, because there's a ton of that in here. And the, the, the idea that we've already talked about, about being a principled person um, in, you know, in an unprincipled society. Um, and I, I wanted to kind of dig just a little bit into that and bring up the idea of, um, and it, now my thoughts are, are fleeing my mind, you guys. This is why I shouldn't do two author shelves two days in a row. Um, but uh, it, the idea of crowds. Ryan, you've heard me bring this up a lot. I hate crowds. I hate everything about them. Well, not everything about them. But for the most part, this idea of a crowd and this this story kind of just touches on, but it doesn't quite dig into what, well like why? Alex's fortunes would have changed so dramatically throughout his career, and it's because of crowds. Um, and it's something that the reason I bring up the three levels is because I feel like this is a real level three thing. Like, how can I focus on principles and you know maintaining, you know, my core beliefs, whatever, in the face of whatever's happening? We see a ton of populism happening all around us today, and you pick any era in history, it's always going on. There's crowds are always uh you know following the next thing or turning on this or turning toward that um and Alex Dumas I th- thought was a great example of somebody who had principles and to the best that he could as far as we're reading stuck with them um and uh, and it made his life really tough at certain points right really great in others um but it, it's hard to be a it's hard, it's hard to be a stick in the river, right? With everything running around you. Yeah. Anyway, love that guy. Uh, okay, anything else before we kind of wrap up our conversation on the Black Count? Final thoughts. This, let, me, let me ask you this for a final thought. For those who are listening who haven't read this book, I think it's valuable in its own right uh, you know on its own terms go read the book it's it's very interesting it's it's absolutely worthwhile would this help Le- legendary listeners who are big fans of fantasy and science fiction will this help them be better readers of fantasy and science fiction
2: i mean i think so <laughs> i do as well but yeah I, go on i i think so i think it's it's a it's it's a way to understand a lot of the real world um, setting that is taken as inspiration for writers. Um, you know, for me in particular, as I mentioned before, you know, I like I write flintlock fantasy. This is very much the you know kind of real world time period that I am trying to get the flavor of for my books. And, uh, and so incredibly invaluable for somebody like me. But I think that for anybody who reads and writes, they want, you know, something, something like this helps give real context to what, um, to stories that may otherwise not be able to delve in too much into the geopolitics of, you know, an era or of a particular kingdom even, or, you know, all these, it's, it adds depth to a reader and a writer's understanding of how decisions are made, how countries become, right? Like the Napoleonic era shaped Europe for a very long time and still kind of reverberates, right? And, and so, yeah, I think it's massively valuable.
0: I think, yeah, I think the idea of context is huge. Um, I, I've heard <laughs> um, criticisms about this book or that book or whatever uh, that, you know, I didn't get enough information about how, you know, how the society would would work. This doesn't make any sense to me. And it's like, well, yeah, you're maybe you don't have the historical literacy to fill in those cracks that you're talking about, to give it that context. And you know, you can, you can argue, anybody could argue about whether the author should be filling those cracks in for you, but, uh, but it's a way that you can kind of, uh, yeah, give yourself a better shot at understanding a world that an author is creating, right? Ryan, thoughts, feelings? Uh,
1: I, I'm mostly in agreement. I think that, I do think that uh, this book would be Will have a bigger impact on someone who also wants to write than someone who's just reading for enjoyment mm-hmm. uh, because it does it does provide context it does give you those things but similarly to your point about just being a more well-versed reader in different eras things like that if you're if you know that the authors that you enjoy are writing in these styles these eras then knowing that source material is going to give you a better insight into why some of those things work. And there's also just the the reality that sometimes the truth can be stranger than fiction. And some of these stories, like you might, if, if you read some of these things in a fantasy novel, you'd be like, ah, dude, this author's jumped the shark. There's no, that doesn't happen. <laughs> this gives you some context to say, no, no, this legitimately is how that some of these things worked and how this happened. So uh, it will benefit a reader. I think it's a greater benefit for those who want to be authors, but there is place for it.
0: Yeah. Cool. Well, yeah, I- Wrapping this one up, I'd say it's a big hearty thumbs up from me. I will say after the first couple of chapters, I was a little bit dubious. I was like, I don't know where this is going to go. And, you know, it was a new kind of writing style. Like Ryan mentioned, I had to change my brain space. But, uh, you know, after a few chapters, I was definitely sucked in. And uh, by the time I got to the end of it, I felt like I'd been on a journey. Definitely recommend it uh, that people go check it out if they haven't yet. You, this episode will have been announced. So I hope that a lot of people had the chance to go pick up the book and give it a shot before we uh, had this discussion. Uh, but if you haven't, please do so. Uh, you you uh, will thank me and yourself and Brian McClellan for it later. So Brian, thank you so much for selecting this book. It was excellent. But now I think we need to turn our attention for just a few minutes to some upcoming projects of yours that I teased at the beginning of the show uh, you have a book coming out tomorrow, if our release schedule holds. <laughs> Tell us
2: about the book. Okay, so this is my uh, new epic fantasy. So I made my career, as we've mentioned a couple times, off of Powder Mage—six um, big fat fantasy novels, two trilogies, a bunch of you know short stuff on the side. Um, but I'm I'm finally I'm kind of moving on to the next part of my career, uh, and I've got a new series coming out, totally new world uh, in the shadow of lightning. Uh, it's, uh, the series is called Glass Immortals, um, and this is uh, in a similar vein to Powder Mage in that it is flintlock epic fantasy um, that takes place in a world in which magic is made. Um, it is a uh, – magic is something called
0: like, – Like manufactured? It's
2: mag- manufactured, yes. Um, so it's called uh, God Glass, and it's literally made in glassworks. And these little tiny baubles that you put in your ear or in whatever piercings you have, or you just hold it, um, and these baubles uh, basically enhance, depending on the way that they're made, they enhance your native capabilities. So Forge Glass will make you stronger and faster Um uh, wit glass will make your brain move faster. Uh, day's glass will just kind of—it gets you stoned, essentially. Um, we have all of these different types of glass that are made; they're produced, uh, manufactured for anyone. Obviously, the, the wealthy are able to get their hands on the very best, but you know, anybody—teamsters uh, use forge glass just to move, you know, barrels of wine. It's—it's um, uh, it's an incredibly entrenched in this wor- this fantasy world and at the very beginning of the book we find out that the materials used to make godglass are running out quickly um and so it's uh it's a kind of a fun meditation on magic as a uh as a limited resource um mm-hmm. which is very enjoyable to me from kind of like a geopolitical sense of Oh, absolutely. You know, like how does this affect the world? And so we we enter this. This is, this is your Dune, Ryan. This is your Dune. It, it it takes a little more from Dune than I probably want to admit, um, which <laughs> nice. which was mostly subconscious. I, I very much developed this world, and my wife went, "There's a lot of Dune in this," and I went, "Oh, yeah. Well, you know what? I'm fine with that. I love Dune." So, <laughs> um, but yeah. So it's basically this this kind of setting. Um, that's very British Empire at its height. Um, but if it was run by gangsters, essentially, uh, I, w- I was trying to uh, uh, kind of combine the British Empire with uh, Republic Rome, um, with these massive families that essentially run everything, these big merchant families. Um, and, uh, and so we basically enter this world uh, with a character named Demir Grappo, who was a, a failed prodigy. Uh, he basically was the up and coming thing. You kind of think you know, Julius Caesar, uh, Napoleon, that type of, he was just incredibly savvy as a politician, as a general, just very good at everything, a child prodigy. And then he had a horrible disaster that ended his political career and he went into self-exile. Um and uh, and we pick up this book when he finds out that his mother's been killed and he has to come back to the capital and basically take his spot as head of their small guild family. and uh, and so we've got immediately scarcity res- scarce resources and revenge. Uh, and uh, everything is basically rolling from there. Uh, it, it's it, it was such a fun book to write. It's, it's been in my head for a long time, and uh, and I'm very excited for people to get to read it.
0: And yeah, I hope people are excited as well. Uh, Ryan, you picking up a copy of that? I assume we'll have one oh, yeah. on in, in the studio shelves, of
1: course. I so I uh, I've read the Powder Mage uh, set. Of, I've enjoyed those, so I'm I'm looking forward to what you have next. Yeah, so.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Well, I hope people go check it out. Um, yeah, like I said, if the release schedule holds, it'll be out what midnight tonight. Okay. So go line up at your local Barnes and Noble and, <laughs> um, and, uh, oh, and tell us about page break. Okay. So yeah, it's been around for a year, but I'm sure a lot of people haven't heard of this yet. So t- tell us what you're doing with page break.
2: Uh, so page break is my podcast. And I had um, it was a podcast that I would had a thought about for many years before I started it. But the pandemic kind of continuing to drag on uh, basically forced my hand of saying, I'm really sick of not being able to chat with my author friends, like because that's what conventions are for. You go and you I mean, you do panels and you sign books, but you also get to go to the bar and hang out with authors you only see once a year. And so my, um, my, uh, so my podcast basically comes from the idea of, I want to have these casual conversations and I'll record them and put them out. And, uh, and that's what it's been. It's, I think I'm at, uh, closing in on episode 40 now. So, uh, so 40 or so, uh, episodes of conversations with different creative professionals. You know, I've got a few YouTubers, I've got an actor, I've got, uh, you know, a, Um, role-playing uh developers uh lots of authors science fiction fantasy um and uh but mostly yeah it's meant to just be casual chats and sometimes we spend 45 minutes complaining about twitter and sometimes we get super (laughs) philosophical and talk about all sorts of random stuff um but lots of writing chat yeah uh, lots of writing chat lots of uh lots of that kind of stuff
0: complaining about Twitter is like the basis of my whole philosophy, you know, so if I'm getting super philosophical, that's where we're starting.
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, like, I I think everybody these days, especially in creative fields, has a very complicated relationship with social media. And so it's brought up (laughs) way too much.
0: Oh, my gosh, absolutely. Well, yeah, it's really, really interesting. Again, people go check that out. Um, I know that I, I got a little taste of what you talked about with Scott Lynch. Um, I don't know if that episode's out yet, but I'll have to go check it out because it, it's, you know, fascinating stuff. And he's got a lot of uh, interesting uh, things coming up. They're, they're out by now. People know, so it's fine. Uh, cool. Well, Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and thank you again for choosing this book. It's like Ryan often says after we do author shelves books, and you kind of alluded to this earlier, we never would have picked this up without you. Uh, it wasn't wasn't on my radar. Never would have thought of it. And uh, and I'm really, really glad I read it. And I hope other people do as well. So uh, let's see. Go to thelegendarium.com. Patreon, Discord, all the stuff. Go buy a copy of In the Shadow of Lightning. Go subscribe to Page Break. And uh, for heaven's sake, stick around for next week's episode, which will be on something. We're recording this a month in advance, so I have no idea, but but listen in and enjoy. Thanks guys.